Well, welcome to the next episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician. I'm a professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, which is an evidence-based online primary care reference. Please check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. Primary Care Update is our summary of recent research that we think is relevant to primary care medicine. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. I'm joined today by my friends, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine emeritus, I guess now, yes. at uh, Michigan State University. How are you doing, guys? Doing well. Henry and I are headed to French Lick, Indiana next week to do one of our essential evidence CME courses. I'm Excellent. really looking forward to golf. that. Bring your golf clubs. I guess there's some really nice golf courses down there. Unfortunately, so, um, I'm still restricted. I just had my gallbladder removed day before yesterday, and they said uh, no heavy lifting, no physical exertion. Not that golf is an exerting sport, but um, um, I have to kind of scale back a little bit. Just ride the golf cart. So I'm sitting in the parking lot of the Onekama Village Library because our internet died last night. So I've got a I've got a nice view of the lake, which is the good part. I'm you know sitting in my car, which is the bad part. But we'll try to make this this work today. Um, so I've got the first poem today, which is um, by Lopez Heitzer Aronson et al. for the Augustus Investigators. Uh, antithrombotic therapy for acute coronary syndrome or PCI in atrial fibrillation was in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, three, volume 380, page 1509. So they asked the question, in patients with atrial fibrillation who experience an episode of acute coronary syndrome or percutaneous coronary intervention, what's the best antithrombotic therapy? And, you know, increase, the folks who get AFib often have risk factors for ACS or uh, coronary heart disease. And so it's not an uncommon scenario to have someone with both. So the question is, you know, what do we do for these folks in terms of antithrombotic therapy? And these were adults with AFib using oral anticoagulation and who had either an ACS episode or PCI in the previous two weeks. So based on the initial assessment, they were at moderate risk for stroke, about 4% per year, and moderate risk for bleeding. Uh, all patients were taking clopidogrel or ticagrelor, and the study was designed to simultaneously compare two strategies, a pixaban, uh, one of the newer DOAs, direct oral anticoagulants, versus warfarin, or aspirin versus placebo. And so patients were randomized into one of four groups, a pixaban plus aspirin, so getting both, a pixaban plus placebo, warfarin plus placebo, I'm sorry, warfarin plus aspirin, and warfarin plus placebo. So they use standard dosing for all the drugs, a pixaban five milligrams twice daily for most patients, and 81 milligrams of aspirin. Patients were treated for six months, and the final outcomes were adjudicated at seven months. Aspirin was double-blinded, Warfarin and apixaban were open-label, which is a limitation. It can be a little tricky to um, double-blind warfarin with all the dosage adjustments, so I think that's why they chose to do that, although they didn't really have to. Uh, groups were balanced at the beginning of the study. Analysis included all patients who got at least one dose of the study drug. Uh, there were a total of 4,683 patients. INR control was very good. Only about a quarter were outside of the a quarter of the measurements were outside of the range of two to three. The main outcome was a combination of major bleeding or non-major but clinically significant bleeding. Uh, for the comparison, 
of apixaban with VKA, the risk of major bleeding and clinically relevant non-major bleeding were both significantly lower. NNT to avoid one major bleed was 26. NNT to prevent one non-major clinical bleed is 17. Both of those favored apixaban over uh, warfarin. That's consistent with some other studies that show a small reduction in bleeding risk with apixaban compared to warfarin in other settings. Major bleeding and non-major bleeding were both more common with aspirin than with placebo, number needed a harm of 22 and 7. So the other side of the coin is what about vascular outcomes? You know, did adding the aspirin reduce vascular outcomes more? And there was a small reduction in stroke risk with apixaban versus uh, warfarin. Uh, Number needed to treat was 83 per year. Lower risk of hospitalization for the apixaban group as well. Number needed to treat was eight. There was no difference between any of the groups for any of the other vascular outcomes or mortality outcomes and no benefit of adding aspirin. So this was a kind of a complicated study. Bottom line, in this you know moderately high-risk group of patients with AFib and ACS or the need for PCI, apixaban plus clopidogrel without aspirin looks like the best choice. Um, John, any thoughts on this? This is a fairly esoteric study in some ways for Mm -hmm. family doctors because we don't do the management, the acute management, and make the decisions in this case. But it is an example, another example, that the DOACs seem to be establishing themselves as good alternatives to warfarin. We still have the cost issue that has to be dealt with, and and perhaps that will uh, equalize because there are a lot of them on the market. But this this is more information that supports use of DOACs for a fairly wide range of indications. Henry, yeah, so you're going to be skeptical. What are you skeptical of today? Well, I'm skeptical of many things, but you know this is actually a really narrowly focused group, as you pointed out, and so that. Uh, number needed to treat of 83 to prevent one stroke. Given the narrow focus, it probably represents a, a really very small um, benefit. Um, we may cover some of these coming up uh, in the in the next few months, but in the last several weeks, there have been a, a few papers published in JAMA and a commentary, not so much about this group, but in patients with recent uh, PCIs and the like, really questioning whether or not aspirin has any ongoing role. I mean, we may be seeing the death knell of aspirin. Uh, we've already covered the Aspire and the Esprit trials showing no benefit to, for primary prevention, Maybe aspirin is not so effective for secondary prevention as well. So stay tuned. Yeah, when I was in Ireland, I did a um, meta-analysis that's now in review by one of the journals with my colleague Frank Moriarty at the Royal College of Surgeons, and we compared the four recent aspirin trials for primary prevention with the older data, sort of the pre-statin era, and also pre-colon cancer screening era, and we found that while there was a benefit for both colorectal cancer and cardiovascular outcomes in the old studies, in the newer era where we're doing statins, we're controlling blood pressure, we're controlling lipids, we're screening for colon cancer, there was just no more benefit. Those those benefits all went away for primary prevention as well. So stay tuned for that. Um, if only the newer quiz. stuff was as cheap as aspirin. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so the quiz this week um, is uh, apparently inspired by the mosquito season in Michigan, which has been, given all the rain we've had, uh, truly uh, plague-like. So, uh, Henry, yeah. tell us tell us what you're thinking about. All right. Well, this is not my quiz question, but what evolutionary purpose do mosquitoes serve? <laughs> Keeping the malaria, malaria alive? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's a, that's more of a, uh, a, a a conversation over adult beverages sometime. So, so the, this, as you pointed out, we are in the midst of mosquito season. And so the question is, which of the following measures are effective in preventing mosquito bites? One, modifying activity to avoid peak biting times. Two, applying permethrin or other repellents to clothes and bed netting. Three, using spatial repellents in circumscribed areas. Four, using insect repellents such as DEET or IR3535. Five, avoiding alcohol consumption. Stay tuned. Well, I hope it's not the last one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, John, I think it's time for your, uh, your poem on depression. Yes, this is a, a great little poem and a great little study. Uh, I'm going to read the title first, which is also the bottom line. Do not change antidepressant treatment early based on lack of response. So let's, let's dig into this. This was a, a meta-analysis published in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2019, volume 214, starting on page four. Now, these researchers were able to get individual patient data from 30 studies of treatment of severe major depression, so these are not mildly depressed people, using second-generation antidepressants, so the usual SNRIs and SSRIs. Uh, so overall, they had data on over 2,000 patients who received active treatment and six, I'm sorry, 2,000 with placebo and 6,000 with active treatment. So this is a big meta-analysis. Now, here are the results. Very interesting. By six weeks of treatment, approximately 50% of, treat, of treated patients had responded and 32% achieved remission of symptoms. So this is the figure that we usually think of in terms of response. However, by 12 weeks, the rate of response was 68% and 50% achieved remission. So this is better than I commonly think of for treatment of antidepressants, but of course, this is at 12 weeks. Now, patients with early improvement, that is by week two, were likely to respond by six weeks. So that's good. But here's the, here's the good part. But almost 33% of the patients without early symptoms responded by six weeks, and then 43% of them responded by 12 weeks. There weren't any individual symptom responses that predicted an eventual response. So the bottom line is don't be in a hurry to change the treatment or to give up on patients with severe depression who don't respond early in the first two weeks. Hang in there. Hang in there. And uh, if you can get the patient to continue the medication for up to 12 weeks, the response rate is really quite good. And the remission rate is quite good as well. So this was a good lesson to me. Uh, I have to say that I tend to give up uh, on that first antidepressant by six weeks, and I'm ready to do something different. But this suggests that you can hang in there and carry the patient through, and many will do well by 12 weeks. Henry, comments? 
Yeah, so I've, I have um, a few. First, this, as you point out, John, this really runs counter to how many of us were taught. I was taught to evaluate the patient to two weeks, and if there was no response whatsoever, switch medications. If there was only a partial improvement, you upped the dose, and you revisited the patient every couple of weeks. So what this paper suggests, though, is going to be a bit of a challenge because most of our patients are going to experience the side effects almost immediately. And if we're going to ask them to hold on for about six weeks, we really have to do a lot of heavy-duty counseling. We have to be very artful in the selection of medications so that we match up side effects to so that those so-called side effects are actually beneficial. Um, we probably need to make sure that we're encouraging early co-therapy for these patients so that they're actually getting counseling at the same time while we are working with the medications. Yeah, th it, I think this is really interesting, and, and I agree with Henry. It is, uh, you know, how he was taught is how I was taught, and um, and I think part of this, I wonder if part of this might also be that here we're talking about patients with severe depression, and in primary care, we're often dealing with patients who have dysthymia or mild to moderate depression. And I wonder if there's a slower or less of a treatment response seen in primary, in those milder patients than in patients with more severe disease. So I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but I, I think certainly, um, the, you know, I was surprised and it will change my practice, particularly for, for those patients with moderate to severe depression. But I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, if you handholding, if you will, and encouragement and, and um, you know, positive messages that we need to share with patients about this, this will turn around as we're treating them. I would love to see this meta-analysis repeated on patients with moderate depression, the ones that we more commonly see, to see if this confirms the same thing in those patients. All right, time to get busy. Henry, uh, we're going to learn about uh, cardioversion. Yeah, so the title of this poem is Early Cardioversion is No Better Than Delayed Cardioversion for Recent Onset Symptomatic Atrial Fibrillation by Pluimakers and Company in the exact same issue as the New England Journal that uh, Mark's paper was in. So a couple of episodes ago, Mark, uh, you reviewed data from the Cabana trial that compared catheter ablation with medications to restore sinus rhythm in patients with atrial fibrillation. This paper just asks, do we need to urgently intervene, uh, particularly since atrial fibrillation can spontaneously terminate? So this was a randomized trial of about 450 patients uh, who presented to the emergency department with new or recurrent symptomatic atrial fibrillation. And we have to emphasize that these are patients with symptomatic, and it was recent onset of symptoms, less than 36 hours. They were randomized to delayed cardioversion or to early cardioversion. So in the early group, patients got medications with flecainide, or they got zapped if they could not administer flecainide or if it failed. And then those patients were discharged to home when they were stable. In the patients who were in the delayed treatment group, they received rate-controlling medications and were sent home also when they were clinically stable, and then were seen the next day in an outpatient clinic. If they remained in atrial fibrillation, then they were referred back to the emergency department for cardioversion. So it turns out that only um, eight patients total uh, required hospitalization. So this was um, actually uh, emphasizing that many of our patients with new onset atrial fib are hemodynamically stable. 
the patients who got the early intervention spent about 160 minutes in the emergency department compared to 120 for those that received the delayed treatment. Well over 90% of patients were in sinus rhythm four weeks later, so there really was no difference in long-term outcomes. In the delayed treatment group, 70% converted to sinus rhythm within 48 hours, and only 28% required delayed cardioversion, and there were really no complications. So this is a study that really points out that you can actually spend some time. You don't have to worry about cardioverting patients acutely if they are hemodynamically stable. Well, this is uh, good to know, and I had an episode of lone AFib when I was in my mid-30s um, or late 20s, uh, anyway, somewhere around that time, and I had um, untreated hypertension at that point, which I didn't know about, and basically drank a ton of caffeine while on an, a really busy call night and then popped into AFib when the phone rang and the nurse was calling about a, a Tylenol dose or something like that. And so, uh, but fortunately popped back into sinus rhythm within 24 hours. I'm glad they didn't jolt me in the ER and um, I, they were patient with it. And I think that's clearly the right, uh, right strategy here. It's good stuff. John? It's also interesting to note that over 90% of the patients at four weeks were still in sinus rhythm. So this does remind us that atrial fibrillation is not necessarily a continuous phenomenon and can be controlled with drugs. That's right. That's right. Good, good advice. Um, and I think it's time for our mosquito lesson. Yes. John, or Henry? So which of the following measures are effective in preventing mosquito bites? Modifying activity to avoid peak biting times, applying permethrin or other repellents to clothes and bed netting, using spatial repellents in circumscribed areas, using conventional um, repellents such as DEET or IR3535, avoiding alcohol consumption. So my best source of information on this came from the CDC's Yellow Book, which is available for free online. I use this, the Yellow Book frequently in, as an adjunct to the CDC's travel page when I have patients who are expecting to travel to exotic locations. It gives great uh, information about chemoprophylaxis, vaccines. It gets very specific to regions, towns, et cetera. So use these resources. Um, the Yellow Book also includes information not just on how to avoid mosquito-borne illness, but also food and waterborne illness. So while mosquitoes are primarily a nuisance in the U.S., worldwide they can account for significant morbidity and mortality, malaria, dengue, Zika, yellow fever, filariasis. And here in the U.S., we do see um, West Nile and other forms of encephalitis, but those are fairly rare. According to the Yellow Book, mosquitoes may bite at any time of the day, and the peak activity varies on the specific mosquito vector. So for example, the mosquitoes that transmit dengue, Zika, and chikungunya tend to be more active during the daytime, while those that transmit malaria are more active at twilight. Arr, why can't it be simple, right? Um, CDC also recommends using mechanical barriers, long sleeve uh, clothing that minimizes uh, skin exposure, using netting, adding permethrins or other repellents to the clothes and netting is even more effective. 
I really hadn't thought much about uh, spatial repellents. These are products that clear rooms or screened areas, like a bomb that you set off, and these appear to have some repellent or insecticidal activity, although the CDC points out that they have not yet been shown to prevent disease, whereas the other measures have. They do recommend using specific skin uh, specific repellents on skin or fabric. There are conventional repellents such as DEET or picaridin, and then they have biopesticide repellents such as oil of eucalyptus, IR3535, which by the way is the ingredient in Skin So Soft bug repellent. Um, they point out that most repellents can be used on children older than two months. If you have infants less than two months, they recommend you protect them from mosquitoes by using an infant carrier. You drape it with mosquito netting and have an elastic edge so that you get a nice tight fit. Um, oil of eucalyptus products specify that they should not be used on children under three years of age. So be careful. All right. So here's the big question. What about alcohol? Well, in 2002, there was a Japanese study, a single paper published in, get this, the Journal of the American Mosquito Control Society. You can't make this stuff up, okay? Um, they took 13 volunteers and a single control subject. The volunteers were given 350 milliliters of beer, and they found that those volunteers had more mosquito landings than the control. They don't report bites. And it turns out that the landings had no correlation at all with the alcohol content, but subsequent studies have suggested that mosquitoes are actually attracted to aldehydes, and so therefore it's unlikely to be unique to beer that all alcohol products, because of the breakdown into aldehydes, can potentially attract mosquitoes. So all of the answers are correct, but I do believe that a cool, refreshing adult beverage may be well worth risking those critters. By the way, none of this says anything about the black flies that occur up on the UP that have been known to carry away small animals. John, have you been infested yet with the big black flies? You know, the black flies are mainly a problem up near Lake Superior uh. and not so much uh, with Lake Michigan. We have a prevailing south wind, so usually they get swept away. So we're in pretty good shape in Escanaba. All right. Yeah, well, I will certainly vouch for uh, long pants and a baseball cap helping. And I think one, another thing you can do is simply stop breathing because it's the CO2 that attracts <laughs> them. So, um, I, and actually, now I do this when I'm walking my dogs in the woods, and that's when I normally get attacked. Uh, when my dog stops to do his business, I'll hold my breath and all the mosquitoes <laughs> swarm to my dogs. <laughs> I can hold my breath for about a minute and then, you know, then I have to get barley moving again. But um, so that's one thing. And I think there are actually um, darker colors, I think, attract them. So mm -hmm. black worse than lighter colors, if I remember correctly. And there are, you know, issues around there. Some people just get swarmed and some people don't. And I think uh, if you can find one of those people that gets attacked by mosquitoes all the time, sit right next to them. <laughs> You'll be okay. There are lots of strategies we use up here in Northern Michigan. You've got to be, got to be thinking this through. Anyway, uh, thanks guys. Hope you, uh, our listeners enjoyed today's discussion. Uh, tell your friends, uh, you know, post on social media, you know, like us on iTunes and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.